You're listening to Happy Ways, a podcast about work life, culture, and leadership. Today, with not only a new intro, but also with a special guest. Welcome to the show, everyone. Nicola Danilov is a blogger, podcaster, and best-selling author of Conversations with the Future. His fame comes from a decade of interviews with around 250 experts, researchers, thinkers, and authors about the future, and the changes driven by our accelerating technologies. We're talking people whose names will be recognized easily by anyone working in technology, including Ray Kurzweil, Peter Diamandis, Noam Chomsky, Marvin Minsky, Aubrey de Grey, and many others. You can listen to those interviews on his podcast, Singularity FM, which I highly recommend. In fact, if you start now, you might just be able to finish the whole series before this lockdown is lifted. Due to his insights gleaned from a decade's work, I thought he would be perfectly suited to put the current pandemic in its proper context. And that's exactly what he did. I had in mind a discussion on whether a situation such as the current pandemic had come up in previous conversations with the expert. But Nicola quickly steered the conversation in a different direction, and I'm glad he did. I'm truly happy we had this conversation. And in fact, it has left me less depressed and with more hope for the future. Yes, COVID-19 is a bad deal. People will die, the economy will take a beating, and your job right now is to stay home, just like I'm doing, and just like Nicola and his family are doing over in Toronto. But we're still here, with a roof over our head, the heat is on, we've got food and Wi-Fi, even toilet paper. Personally, I got a new car in my garage, and even though all my talks and workshops are currently cancelled, I'll be okay. To say the world is turned upside down is therefore going too far, as you will hear. The conversation took place over the phone, and the sound quality is not the best. I hope, however, that the quality of what is said We'll even things out for you. And now, for the interview. Okay, I'm here with Nicola Danilov. Nicola, welcome to the podcast. Nice to talk to you, John. Yeah, good to talk to you again. So we've connected uh, a few times online, and we met last summer. You did a keynote in Copenhagen. And then I've listened to your podcast maybe three or four years Though I, I must say I haven't listened to the entire back catalog because that's that's a lot. So the reason for talking today is the world is is completely upside down at the moment, and I thought we could uh, dig into that. But before we do, please, um, can you tell people in your own words what it is that you do? Okay, so my name is Nick Danielov. I'm the the founder of uh, SingularityWeblog dot com and uh, the founder of. Uh, what used to be called Singularity One-on-One Podcast. Now it's called Singularity FM. Uh, I'm also the best-selling author of Conversations with the Future, 21 Visions for the 21st Century. Uh, let me just take a, a small issue with what you just said, okay? Because you said that now we are in a situation where the world is upside down. And I want to be very clear. So we live in a world that's changing. It's changing faster than it ever has changed before. It's not upside down, okay? We are still talking over our phones across the ocean right now. So let's put this in perspective. You're comfortable and cozy in your own house, even though you're under home quarantine. 
I am comfortable and cozy here in my own house on the 18th floor. I have my fridge full of food. I have clean water. I have electricity, internet, phone connection, and everything that I need. And I would venture a guess that you're in, the, in a similar position like I am. So while this may be a little boring and a little bit, you know, exhausting and exasperating and, and all those things, uh, and, you know, real people are dying out there in the world. So yesterday in Italy, 500 people died. You know, th there's real problems in the world. There always are. But the world is absolutely not upside down. Absolute, upside down means uh, first we wouldn't be able to do this interview, right? Because we would have much more urgent things to deal with, such as survival, immediate survival. That is to say food, water, shelter, and things like that. Right now it's still the winter in Canada. So if the world was upside down, I'll be struggling in negative degrees outside without any food or shelter and maybe water in water and, and struggling for survival. So we're nowhere remotely to that end. Okay, so the, the, the way I think is the best way to approach the world of, of, of our day, just like the world of any day, back in the day when the ancient Greeks lived, and today and tomorrow is the same principle. And that principle, in my view, contains two eternal truths. And the first one is or or attitudes, if you will, not truth necessarily, but attitudes, because they're choices. The first one is simply don't live in denial. So, you know, accept the world as it is. Don't fight it in, in the sense of denying it, but rather embrace it as it, is, as it comes to you and then figure out what's the best choice you can make within that context and how you fit within that world. What's the story you want to tell about who you are and what you're going to do about the world that you're living in? So that's the first part. And the second part is that the, the, the attitude so brilliantly proposed by Douglas Adams in most of his books, and that's very simply, don't panic. You know, don't panic. It's not the end of the world. We're going through a tough situation. Later on in our conversation, I'm sure we'll talk more about it, and I'll, I'll tell you why I believe uh, it is not even a very tough situation yet. But even if it was much tougher than this, panic doesn't help, and it's useless, and it only hurts. So regardless of how bad it is, and it is not bad at all right now, at least not for me and you right now as we're speaking, there's no need to panic. So Douglas Adams' message from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and so on. Don't panic. Holds very true. Nicola, this is why I I love what you do because you put things in the proper perspective. And I've loved your your discussions with authors and thinkers and professors over the years, and sometimes refusing to to rush with the narrative. Um, so yes, don't panic. Things are actually okay. I can tell you on my side. I have the fireplace on. It is really nice and cozy here, and it'll be a long time until I run out of anything and in fact the stores are open um so so yeah. yes i do agree with you um let's put things in the proper perspective um that being said this is a very weird situation and we're not sure where it's going and what the impacts will be but um yeah let's bounce around on that um you've interviewed over this past decade like around coming up on 250 thinkers uh, authors yeah. researchers like Famous names like Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis, um, 
Chomsky, um, Ostrom, yes, I can name more. Having listened to quite a few of those interviews, I'm more into interested in like your distilled take on what are you thinking about the future now that you've talked to these 250 people. I can mention to our audience here, I did listen to a keynote you did, that's I think it's seven months ago, where you delivered some of these messages. So so let's let's do a brief version here of what do you think where are we going at this moment in time? Well, so he, here's the thing. So I want to focus a little more about the attitude because it's not so much the destination as for your question, where are we going? Mm -hmm. But it is how we're going that also makes a difference, right? And maybe in some situation, how we're going is as important as the destination, right? Because if you, if you uh, go to this destination, uh, but but you turn your journey towards that destination into a nightmare, into a hell, then in many cases, if not in most cases, uh, the the negative hellishness of the journey may even deny the benefits of the destination. So I would suggest to you that, you know, the destination is not entirely irrelevant. It is important, clearly. But maybe it is on par important as for how you're conducting the journey. And so I want to change your question a little bit. Yes. Uh, not only where are we going, but how are we going? And what I mean by that is what kind of attitude we we know you and me are well informed. We're both professional keynote speakers. We keep keynote speakers. We're, we're both aware of the tremendous exponential changes that we're experiencing today. So more than ever now, we have to, I believe, go back to some ancient wisdoms, if you will, such as Stoic philosophy, and embrace that kind of a Stoic philosophy type of an attitude towards our changing world, and embrace the fact that the world beyond us is, out, is beyond our control. But what we can control is our attitude and our thoughts about it. And if we can take possession of those, of our mind, of our thoughts, and of our attitude towards that world, we can present our best self uh, towards that world and towards any challenge, regardless of its specificity. So that's, I think, the best general attitude. And that's why, for me personally, I start every day of my life, despite the fact that I follow all the uh, trends in technology, uh, obsessively, if you will, but I start every day of my life with two simple steps. One is um, I read a single page uh, of Stoic philosophy every day uh, by a, a book by Ryan Holiday called The Daily Stoic, and I've been doing that for the last two years now, um, and it's very, very helpful to keep my mind focused. Uh, and, and the other thing is I go out for a walk and I meet, meet the sunrise with my wife. And this, these two effects uh, or actions sort of put me in the best frame of mind to, to, to face any challenges that the day presents to us all. And so, uh, and, and in a way, if you will, where we're going would be greatly determined, if you will, by our attitudes. Right. So let me give you three, three, three crazy examples that Please. are all true, factual, historically accurate examples that happened in the last week or so. 
So the first was the panic surrounding toilet paper, right? <laughs> that was a global panic, right? People, uh, as, as uh, one of my neighbors was telling me a joke, you know, one person sneezes in their sleep and a hundred people shit in their pants. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of a, a, a ridiculous panic that we ended up living in, okay? While there is no reason for it, there is no rational justification, right? We are not suffering a shortage of toilet paper. And even if we were, that's certainly not the end of the world. We can survive. I grew up in communist Bulgaria behind the Iron Curtain. And to be frank with you, uh, for the first 14 years of my life, toilet paper was a luxury. We didn't have regular access to toilet paper. Uh, and we survived and we were totally fine and we were clean and we were happy. Okay. It's not the end of the world. The second thing, but that's part of that attitude that I'm talking about here, right? Because, uh, another example is I was watching in the United States yesterday and in a minute, I'll give you the Canadian version. In the United States, there was a panic about guns and ammo. It seems that no matter what happens, no matter what kind of crisis we, we have in the world or in the United States, a certain part of the population always has a single response to it. And that's, let's go line up at five in the morning to this huge Walmart-sized gun, guns and ammo stores and load up on as many guns and ammo as we can carry. Okay? I don't understand how we can, we can't, like, certainly we can't eat uh, the bullets and the, and the powder and we surely can't shoot the virus. So I, I fail to see how that would happen, but that creates a certain attitude, uh, which can impact on the kind of future we're going to get to. And finally, in Canada, we had our Canadian, uh, Canuck version of the American panic and the global, uh, toilet paper panic. And that in a province in Canada called the Newfoundland, the government, which has a monopoly over the sale of marijuana and alcohol, decided to close the government stores uh, for those products at 3 o'clock in the afternoon the next day. And at the same time, they issued a warning of people to stay away from each other, to stay home, and, and you know, to keep social distancing. Yet, people went like crazy to load up on marijuana and on alcohol completely disregarding <laughs> the the advice, the public health advice that we should keep our social distancing. And we're literally loading up cartloads of alcohol and, and God knows what amount of marijuana, you know. So it's, it's the end. That's what I guess some of us Canadians do. We don't load up on the guns and ammo. We just want to have good time. So we just load up on booze and, and drugs, <laughs> right? So... So my point here of these three examples is to show you how each of those cases of how we are uh, relating to a particular future crisis can actually determine or have at least some kind of an uh, impact on the kind of future that we're going to get to. I hope uh, this starts to make sense to you when I'm, I'm quoting all these examples because our attitude can make certain futures more likely and other futures less likely. So, for example, if we're all armed to the teeth uh, and, and we live in a powder keg, then, then that clearly, in my view, 
increases the potentiality for armed conflict, for for accidents that can lead to civil unrest and, and violent civil unrest, right? And so that's why I want to keep the message here that that the attitude of how we're going towards a particular future is as important as where we're going towards a particular future because those two are connected and maybe the attitude might might be the first uh, among several factors that can impact on what kind of outcome we get to. And I believe that that holds true to the crisis of the coronavirus. It also holds true to global warming, soil erosion, species extinction, any particular uh, grand challenge that humanity is facing today uh, can be impacted by our attitude towards it. And if we have an attitude of fear and panic, it's going to clearly have, have increased the likelihood of a negative outcome. And that's why I, I want to say, don't panic, guys. Don't panic. Excellent. Thank you. And this comes directly in line with your, your latest podcast interview on your own show uh, with Dr. Anne Kevorkian, where you talked about privacy. And, and she mentioned the example from Israel, where Netanyahu uh, commandeered the cell phone data of millions of people so they could track the virus. And in in China, we've heard that they use apps to track people where they are and if they're allowed to go out and so on. And and, and this is assume, presumably done in a good cause. But have we then let, you know, have we let a tiger in when we start using these tools? And is that the kind of society we then want to live in, where that becomes the the, the way we travel? don't know if you want well, to comment on that. Well, that's why... Yes, that's why I keep harping on don't panic because some of the decisions we take today would last us much longer than that particular crisis. You know, in life, there are things that are uh, critically important right now because they're urgent. And there are things that are critically important in the long run because they are important. So we have to make the distinction between what's urgent and what's important. And we should make sure that the urgent does not uh, come at the expense of the importance because the reality is in 10 or 20 or 30 years, when we're looking back, whether individually as uh, citizens, whether professionally as entrepreneurs and employees, or whether collectively as a species, what is going to stand out to us and to history is not going to be a particular crisis, but the important things that we may uh, break through on. Uh, and, and so Netanyahu basically has control over the whole population of Israel's uh, cell phone data now, which is not much different than the uh, what the Iranian regime is trying to accomplish in Iran. You know, one is a democratic government, one is a totalitarian theocracy. Uh, and But the result, in the end of the day, may be rather similar. And... That, to me, is a very worrying uh, development, and that's why I want to tell people, be careful, don't panic, and think about the long-term important effects on democracy, on privacy, on freedom, and stuff like that, rather than sh- uh, short-term solutions. Because what happens in life is that shortcuts usually take double the time, double the money, and and a lot more <laughs> 
uh, and do a lot more collateral damage than we envisioned originally. Right. That, that's very often the case. And, and usually people who are selling you shortcuts like snake oil salesmen, uh, you know, end up doing more damage than good. And, and, and people who are uh, liable or, or, or vulnerable to accepting such promises also end up doing more damage to themselves and the people uh, who they love and care about simply because they're tempted by uh, big promises, uh, you know, which almost never pan out. It seems that we can easily go that way when you look at the the way, the mode of thinking in, in Silicon Valley that is governing so much of our world now, deciding how, how we live. The, the solutions they, yep. they pump out, it seems to be governed by, well, can we make anything just a bit more convenient? People will go for it without question. And at the same time, they say move yeah. fast and break things. And so, so there doesn't seem to be any any breaks on the development. And having listened to many of your interviews, um, all these smart people, they come off as as one part nerd, which is great, but also very optimistic and in love with their ideas. And sure. And then all of a sudden, we are left with the downside that we didn't really anticipate, like the surveillance how you can use the data and all this technology and so on. Um, so do you fear, just to get back to the present moment, do you have any concerns that what's happening now can be a a setback we didn't see coming, or have you been thinking this all the way? Actually, I think it could be a, a blessing in disguise, uh, or I hope, or, or maybe if you will, I choose to look at this as a blessing in disguise because as I was saying in the beginning, first of all, it could have been a lot worse, right? Me and you, we live in a bubble uh, because we live in, a, in first world countries and we have it very easy, generally speaking. Most people have much harsher, shorter, more brutish and most more dangerous lives and, and, and much less comfortable lives than you and me. Definitely. So we honestly have no right to complain whatsoever, right? Secondly, uh, we are still undisturbed, as I pointed in the beginning. Thirdly, this could have been a lot worse in terms of either infectious rate. So let's say if the virus was airborne, it could have been a lot worse. Or it could have had much higher mortality rate. Right now, we think that the, the, the mortality rate is most likely under 2%, maybe even under 1%. Uh, we, uh, I think the latest numbers that we're looking at suggest that because Chances are most people who catch the virus don't even ever seek attention. So as bad as it is, we should be grateful that it's not as bad as it could have been. And therefore, we should look for the silver lining. And this could be, uh, you know, a crisis that be wasted or a crisis that we learn from and that we get better from, right? So that's why I prefer to focus on the blessing here because I believe this would wake up the global community, the, the global group of nations, if you will, that we are all in this together, that the problems that we face today are most of them, the biggest one anyway, are global problems. They cannot be contained within borders. Therefore, the solutions cannot be national and within borders. They have to be global, and they have to be based on mutual respect and cooperation and uh, coordination. And basically, we're all in this together. And we have to be more prepared for anything like global pandemics, 
so that the next time when it's actually unfortunately more infectious or more lethal than right now the coronavirus is at the moment, then we would be better able to respond, right? So this Toronto here has a few hospitals which fought the SARS outbreak uh, about, what is it, 15 years ago, roughly 15, 17 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the result of that is that these hospitals were very well equipped and are very well equipped. The staff there is well trained how to deal with outbreaks like that. Doesn't mean that they cannot get overwhelmed. They are beyond a certain point, they will too. But their capacity to deal with a crisis of this kind is much higher and much better because they have not only seen that for real before, but then, since then, they have had processes developed and equipment bought and a certain kind of streamlining that they have developed to address issue like that. Compare that to a hospital in the United States, which has never seen any of these effects, and a medical healthcare system where people have to pay to be examined and therefore don't have incentives to actually be examined and exactly. therefore they can keep spreading the virus indefinitely, right? So, uh, and you can even see some of the results, the different results between a place such as Vancouver and a place 200 kilometers south of it called Washington or Seattle with similar population, similar ge demographics, similar geography, and yet very, very different outcomes, right? So yes. I would like to say that this could be the, the blessing, this could be the silver lining where us globally, the American system, the global system wakes up to the potential of global pandemics and maybe we can listen to Bill Gates that we're not ready and maybe we should actually listen to him and start getting ready. Right, because this this whole idea and what's going on is not news. We've been This has been on the minds of smart people for a long time and... And as you say, some governments are prepared because they knew it could happen, and others are willfully ignorant. And you mentioned Bill Gates, like his his TED talk is now circling the social media again, doing the circles after people found it in the archives. What is that? Five years ago, he said we're not ready for this, and now it's happening again. Yeah. Um, yeah. I completely agree with you. I have many friends in the United States. I'm sure you do too. And I, I do worry about what will happen in the short term. But it could also be much worse than the virus because their economy could take a big hit, uh, which obviously is a setback in in many ways. But yeah, also maybe the blessing in disguise that things that need needed changing will maybe change this time. Well, But look, everyone would be impacted. My wife, first of all, my wife, half of my wife's family is American, so she's a dual citizen. She's Canadian uh, and American dual citizen. Secondly, me and you. Uh, I don't know about you, but I suspect you're in the same situation as I am, where probably over 90, 95% of my income comes from keynote speaking. Right. As you know yourself, that business is dead right now, probably dead for the next six months, maybe longer, right? So uh, the economies will suffer, our personal incomes will suffer. We have no right to complain, okay? We have absolutely no right to complain. We are not dying. We're not suffering right now, me and you. We have no right to complain. We have to focus on the blessing in disguise. Use this time to self-improve ourselves, to write, to learn, to connect to people, to find a way to make a difference. For example, Bill Gates, you mentioned this TED Talk from 2015. Bill Gates would be called, you know, Ted Rogers used to have this thing about the helpers. Seek the helpers in a crisis. Right, so Bill Gates would be one of those helpers, right? So following Ted Rogers' advice, 
seek the helpers and, and then we can ask them or seek how we can help the helpers, how we can join their community, what, could, what we could do to make their life easier, to make their work easier, or at least, at the very least, not to make it any harder. So if people tell us, you know, you, you don't have to actively go become, you know, a participant, but at the very least, you may hopefully not make things worse by going and hoarding toilet paper, loading up on drugs and alcohol, or, or uh, you know, going and partying like there's no tomorrow. You know, as long as you're responsible, at least you're not doing damage. And then hopefully, if you have the urge, then you can even start making some positive difference, not only some negative one. Mm-hmm. And, and find ways where your skill set, your knowledge, your experience, or even your physical strength or what have you, uh, maybe your financial strength, whatever your assets are, whether they're financial, physical, mental, intellectual, academic, somehow maybe you can help, you know? And so seek the helpers and help them because the helpers are there trying to make the world a better place. The helpers try to warn us, like Bill tried to warn us five years ago by telling us we're not ready. We can see now that we're not ready. And that's why I'm saying it's a blessing in disguise because hopefully right now it's not so bad and dire and hopefully we would learn from this experience so that when it is really bad and dire, then we'll be better. And we'll be better off in the end for that. I completely agree. I sometimes use the term that, I guess it roughly translates to something like, as long as anybody can remember, is about two weeks. Meaning that we learn our lesson, but then after time, and that time is sometimes short, we act like we didn't learn our lesson. So after... World War II, the world came together, we founded UN, and we had massive development. But then it seems yeah. that the past few decades, cooperation have been falling apart. People are thinking about themselves. Like on a country scale, it's it's us versus them. But also on an individual scale, we've become, since the 90s, focusing on me, 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 and not so much your community and how can you help others. So yeah, perhaps this is a time to to learn that lesson again. I do see small positive signs, like here uh, this past week, people have really come together. Like every day there's community singing out of balconies, like we saw it in Italy a a week ago. People are doing that here now in Denmark. One one restaurant was just on the news. They don't have any customers, but they're still open. There's, There's some takeaway. So they said, okay, any medical professionals, there's free pizza. Just come pick it up, right? Um, so really trying to support yeah. in any small way we can, right? Yeah. And so I think, yeah, for the, for the soul of my nation at least, I think this can be this can be very helpful. And maybe, yeah, a just-in-time wake-up call. And that's or something not to worse. underplay the fact that real people are dying. Yes, definitely. And I'm personally worried. I, I have aging parents and an even older grandmother, and I really don't want them to catch this virus because the odds on their side are not as great as they are on my side which is also one of the reasons why I'm I'm staying home like they encourage us to. So this definitely will will take a toll and it'll be a rough 3 or 6 months, but on my part it's it's only money. Yes, there's no speaking at all and I've sort of sort of written that off and now I'm spending my time writing and podcasting and and tomorrow I'm going to yep. record a small online class on how to stay happy and motivated when you're not at the office and I'm going to put that out for free to my Danish audience just to help them out. And then the money can mm-hmm. come later, you know. Good I, for I, you. I got a house. Yeah. I, got, I got food. Everything is fine. Yeah, and let me let me just give you a little hard time, my friend. 
I think the worst that can happen for you right now is you're not going to be able to drive your new Porsche. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. not the end of the world. You saw that, yes. That's that's the bubble. That's the bubble that we live in yes. in the first world. That 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 is going to burst with this pandemic. Yes. Because we used to think that there's the first world, the second world, and the third world. And you know, terrorism happens there in the second and third world most of the time. Sometimes here, but very rarely. And terrible natural disasters happen there. And you know. Uh, pandemics of polio or, or epidemics of polio and, you know, uh, malaria and yellow fever and, you know, whatever what have you happens in those all those other countries. But, you know, we're here and they're there and we're rich and they're poor and we're happy and they're suffering and that was the world. Now the world is one. The world is one. And this pandemic has shown us that the world is one. There is no hard and sharp black and white divisions anymore. There's no borders. We drink the same air. We drink the same water. We are liable and susceptible to the same diseases. We have the same requirements of food, water, and shelter, and all that stuff. So, you know, maybe that would be a positive thing, too, because we would hopefully stop being preoccupied with, you know, the next move up from an M3 to a Porsche but rather how we can more effectively channel our focus to something more productive collectively. And I've been kind of merciless on you here right now, but because, you know, I love an M- I would love an M3 and I, I would love a Porsche too. But I'm just saying that, you know, in a situation in the world that we live in today, despite the fact that those are great cars and they're lots of fun to drive, <laughs> there may be more important things that we should occupy our attention with. And maybe this would be a wake-up call that we should focus on those rather than the things that are fun, like a Porsche and an M3. I, I completely agree, and, and none taken to your attempt at insults there. Uh, and I do agree, and I think this, this whole situation hopefully can maybe be a dress rehearsal for climate change because we've known for a long time that that's going in the wrong direction. But the time scale seems to be out of, like, contrary to the way we are wired, right? You know, there's a t- there's a lion in front of you, and you act. But a rumor of a lion next year, we don't seem to be able to respond to that. And we've been thinking, but, at least I've heard that we can't solve this, we can't go together, we can't agree, who's going to pay? And, and now we're sort of seeing a taking a crash course in coming together here. And that's another way that this could be so beneficial too, you see, because it would show that many of our previous presumptions are completely wrong. So, for example, one of our presumptions in Silicon Valley is that, you see, you can't stop technology and you can't stop this and you can't stop that. Actually, we have historical examples, first of all, for hundreds of years, take the Amish. The Amish have a very wide uh, attitude towards technology. They're not technophobes. They're not uh, haters of technology, they simply decide, have decided to take their time in assessing and choosing which technology they should embrace as a humani- as a, a community altogether and which should, they should not. And at what time uh, and, and at what pace, rather than throw everything and embrace everything as uh, good by default. Which is a wise attitude, even though I'm not Amish myself. I think uh, we can all learn from that attitude. And second, secondly, now with this crisis unfolding, we can actually see the spillover effects and the benefits. Like, 
fish is coming back in the Venice Canal. Dolphins are chasing the fish and are showing up in the canal. The, the pollution over China and in a bunch of other places which traditionally have been very uh, strong industrial pollutants have diminished tremendously. So people can actually breathe clean air. The water has cleaned up, like all those positive spillover effects, which means that if a virus outbreak or a pandemic can make us do that, why is it that we believe that we cannot do that by choice? Why is it that if a virus can quarantine us at home and make us, uh, you know, make do with whatever we have in our fridge and be a little bit more frugal and be a little bit more humble and modest, we can do that. Why is it that we can't do that by choice? Why is it that we can't do that without being forced to do it? And I believe that while maybe not everyone would accept that kind of attitude, a lot more people than before would be willing and able to embrace that kind of attitude simply because they would experience now this pandemic and they would prove to themselves that they can do it and they can be better for it. And that would create a certain kind of mental or attitude flexibility, which I believe in the long run may actually help us better address that original question of yours about the kind of future that we're going towards with respect to every specific crisis that we face, whether a pandemic, whether global warming, whether soil erosion, etc., whatever it may be. I remember you talking about this at the keynote last year, and you said that in order to overcome these challenges, we need we need the proper leaders. And, and you said that leaders tell uncomfortable stories and, and that they have yes. to be highly unreasonable was also something you said, that all progress comes yes. from unreasonable people was one of the notes I took from there. Um, so do, do, you, yes. do we have these leaders at the moment or are we hoping that they will emerge from the situation? Are well, they, they're emerging and, and so maybe not from the quarters we expect, but take, for example, Greta, right? No one picked Greta to be a leader. No one chose her. No one gave her an authorization. No one gave her a certificate and say, okay, go change the world. No one gave her permission. But she didn't seek a permission, she didn't seek a diploma, and she didn't seek an authorization. She just took it on her own shoulders as a responsibility to raise awareness about climate change, right? And that's what leadership is all about. Does she make people comfortable? No. Many of the haters that have come out of the woodwork towards Greta and telling her she should go back to school and all of that comes from the fact that, you know, she makes people uncomfortable because she's a poor... uh child and at least when she started she was uh, she was much younger than she was now and yet she was able able to mobilize so much more uh, public awareness and change of attitude than many rich and powerful people ever had and that makes people feel very uncomfortable because it, it shows them that the world is not under their control and is not what they expect it to be and it shows that they also not only have a responsibility but even a possibility to make a difference much more than they pretend that they can, right? Mm -hmm. And so the leadership will emerge and is emerging maybe from different places that we never even expected in the first place. A few years back, I did a lot of volunteering. In fact, for about eight mm -hmm. years, I spent just as much time on volunteering as I did with my career back then um, in a youth organization. Mm -hmm. So there are many of those. I was in the one yeah. called uh, JCI, 
Junior Chamber International. It's in most countries, also Canada. Yeah. And 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 I know that from 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 that experience that organizations like that with volunteers and trying to tackle the world's problems, they've actually been suffering over the yep. decades since the 80s. Like like membership topped in the 70s and 80s, and then with the emergence of the I don't know what you would call it, is it the individual culture, the yuppie culture, and the booming 80s. Um, when the when the 90s when the economy was really great and we got more opportunities into the new millennium and now it's computer games and Netflix and people seem disengaged so these volunteer organizations in many places are really struggling to ignite people do you see any any proof that that is changing with the younger generations that they are more prepared to to take up the mantle and people should just move out of the way absolutely you see we're talking here about the the clash of two narratives or, or several narratives, but that sort of rise of individualism and consumerism that you're talking about and sort of selfishness generally comes from, from North America and this kind of like either direct or indirect uh, Ayn Randian sort of objectivist sort of selfishness is virtue kind of philosophy that's under, you know, underwritten or deeply hidden behind this, this kind of ideology. Of, or personal philosophy, if you will. Uh, and and the, the idea there is, of course, that as long as you do uh, uh, the best to be selfish as a rational, self-interested agent, then not only you would be better off, but the world would be better off in general. Well, that doesn't work in a in a in an epidemic context. Okay, that philosophy is a reflection of the American healthcare system. And I already gave you an example of two cities which are very close to each other with similar geography and demographics and size and yet experiencing the pandemic in two contrary different ways so far. And and the reason for that stems from that ideology, right? Because a collective scourge like a pandemic can be and will be solved by collective measures and collective cooperation and all of those things taken at the collective global level, even if you will, not only nationally, but globally, right? Whereas the individual here, many actually, many of those individuals, the, the high net worth individuals were getting on their pl- private planes and flying off to their bunker, uh, bunker uh, sort of hideout, you know? Right. Because yes. people kept, kept those in, in Alaska, or in New Zealand and in some places in the United States where they used to have the nuclear missile silos with stocked up with food and weapons and, and all of that stuff. You know, that's basically a surrender. That's basically, you know, complete <laughs> idiocy, if, if you ask me. Because even if you, if you save yourself in the short run, then basically you're surrendering the planet to others and you're saying, uh, that if the world goes to hell, you're going to give yourself a little bit more head time. But if you are in a bunker, maybe you'll survive some time longer than others, but how is that going to help you in the long run? What helps in the long run is actually if we have cooperation, coordination, and collective attempt to tackle the cause, not the symptoms, right? And, and, and so I think that this pandemic actually... Uh, is one of many reasons why why the narrative of this kind of individualism and we're all better off together if we're all better off separately doesn't work. Uh, and, and that we all have to be better off together in order us, for us to be better off separately, right? Because again, we breathe the same air, we drink the same water, 
we share the same cities, you know, you don't produce your food, probably I don't produce my food for sure. So we have to go get it from somebody else. And if they're sick or unhealthy or something like that, then we would be impacted and we're all in this together, right? So then you have this new narrative. It's not new narrative. It's actually different narrative, but it's not new. That That is now going to be more and more um, prevalent, I believe, because you would have the experience of a pandemic behind it as, as a piece of evidence, you know, and one, and, and, and I think the inadequacy of the American system uh, will be, again, ammunition or, or example of how this actually falls apart. And, of course, the medical realm uh, or the pandemic realm, the global disease and outbreak realm is only one realm where this thinking, I think, falls short. But uh, climate change is another realm where that kind of thinking falls short because we live on the same planet. We share the same air. We share the same biosphere. We have the same atmosphere. So we cannot have piecemeal local solutions. We have to have a global solution. The same applies to ocean acidification, soil erosion, species extinction, uh, even, you know, uh, large-scale human movements such as refugees um, or, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, sexual slaves or, or what have you. Uh, cr crime cartels, too, they're global now. Most of our big problems that we have, contraband materials, you know, fake news, everything nowadays is going global, you know? Right. So so that kind of a localized, nationalistic, narrow-minded uh, thinking is not going to be able to address those problems at all. I completely agree, and you put it so eloquently, and that's why I, I wanted to talk to you. Okay, Nicola, this has been great. Um, be before we end, I just want to bring us back to the present and our everyday lives because that is also what I try to do here on the podcast and help my listeners. So this this situation is going to be some months, and we're going to get out the other side, and we're going to pick up the pieces in some places, bigger pieces than others. So do you have any parting advice for people on how they should approach this sort of more on the, the near term to to get out in a productive way on the other side? Well, I should probably want to close the loop here and bring us back to where we started. So my advice and my final parting message would be, number one, don't live in denial. Take all measures as advised by, you know, the health authorities to keep yourself, your family, and the community that you live in healthy and to uh, not spread the disease. That's number one. Number two is at the same time as you should not live in denial, don't live in panic, okay? Don't panic. It's not the end of the world. It's okay. Everything is going to be okay. It's not the end of the world. It's okay. And thirdly and finally, don't focus uh, on what is urgent only, but also focus on what is important. Because 10 or 20 or 30 years from now, what would make the difference and what would matter is what was important rather than what is urgent. Many of the crises that we live through in our lives, whether personally, when I say crises in our personal context, in our personal lives, we forget the crises. You know, we live through them when we're teenagers, before that, after that. Life is one crisis after another. But when we look at our lives individually backwards, it is the things that are important that we focused on despite the 
the temporary crisis if we find ourselves that make a difference for our life and for the lives of others. And that, I think, is also true collectively as a civilization. You know, we should not lose sight of the things, the big things that matter, the big things that make a difference, the big things that are important for the next decade, two or three or four decades. And so, yes, we have to address the crisis and the urgency, but we should not lose sight of what's important. We should do both. We should focus on both, and we should seek a narrative that would inform our decision and our attitude towards uh, both the urgent crisis that we're in right now, but also towards the important things that matter for us individually and also for us collectively as a civilization. And even to quote Douglas Rushkoff, we should not be merely spectators in the coronavirus uh, global TV show. You know, we should seek a way how we could be an active participant in that narrative rather than a passive, uh, you know, observer of a TV show uh, on the news network. And we should seek where, how, and if we can offer to help the helpers if we're not the helpers ourselves. Nicola, this has been great. I'm so happy we um, we managed to do, do this in our comfy, comfortable little bubbles here across the world. <laughs> for people who are not already listening or reading your stuff, please say again where they can find you. Well, you can go to singularityweblog.com uh, or singularity.info. It's the same website. Or if you just want to check out my podcast, you can find it everywhere where podcasts are available, iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher, etc. It's singularity.fm singularity.fm. If you want to check out my book, it's called Conversations with the Future, 21 Visions for the 21st Century, and it's available on Amazon. Excellent. And for those who don't know, my speaking is on happyways.com, and my podcast, the English one, is also Happy Ways. But before you listen to that one, I really think you should listen to Nicola's work because it is excellent. Nicola, thank you very much, and best of luck in the coming times. And... Uh, Don't panic, forget the toilet paper, and we got this. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, John. And, and the reason why we shouldn't panic is also that even if we don't get toilet paper, we would survive. I told you I lived for the first 14 years in my life <laughs> without easy access to toilet paper. I still survived it. I made it to adulthood. It didn't destroy me as a human being. I'm still okay. I don't have a nightmare. I don't wake up in the middle of the night dreaming of how I never had access to, you know, toilet paper when I was a child. It's okay. And hopefully uh, this will be over in the next few months. And I'm honestly looking forward to going back to my most favorite city after Toronto, which is Copenhagen, hopefully seeing you again uh, in person and hopefully spending a little more time with you. Maybe even uh, going for a ride in your Porsche. Oh, that would be sweet. Thank you very much, Nicola. All the best. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Ciao, my friend.